Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. This is just to let you know that we now have a Twitter feed. Check us out at, at @elucidationspod on Twitter. And of course, you can also, as always, check out our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Leave us your comments. Thanks. Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Amsterdam. With me today is Martin Stokhoff, Professor of Philosophy of Language at the Institute for Logic, Language, and Computation at the University of Amsterdam, and he is here to talk to us about formal semantics and Wittgenstein. Martin Stokhoff, welcome. Thank you. So formal semantics is a very interesting kind of multidisciplinary discipline. It sort of started off in philosophy, you might say, in the earlier part of the 20th century. And then it sort of morphed into a subfield of linguistics. And now a lot of philosophers of language are getting back into it. So maybe we can just start off by saying something about what formal semantics is and what it's trying to do. Yeah. The origins of formal semantics are very much multidisciplinary. And um, as we know the field today, it uh, originated in the late 60s, early 70s of the last century, uh, when primarily people are working in logic and philosophy, uh, luminaries like Richard Montague, uh, Donald Davidson, uh, Jaco Hintika, um, later uh, David Lewis, started to explore the idea of applying modern logic, primarily, uh, though not exclusively, um, techniques from modal logic, to the analysis of natural language. Later they were joined uh, quite quickly in the beginning of the 70s by uh, linguists. Very famous names here are those of Barbara Parti and Emmen Bach in the U US, uh, Renate Bartsch and Theo Venemann from uh, Germany, Ed Keenan, uh, then working in um, the UK. The, the, the multidisciplinary uh, origins show mainly in the fact that in the beginning formal semantics was more a conceptual than an empirical enterprise. If we look, for example, at Davidson's Truth and Meaning, which is one of the seminal papers in the area, we see that he um, explicitly denies any, making any empirical claims, but focuses on, you might call it, a proof of concept, trying to show that the concept of a natural language semantics and of the competence of natural language speakers can be captured by a formal theory. In his case, that would be an extensional Tarski-style truth theory. Someone like Montague, for example, this is a famous quote from uh, Universal Grammar, paper from the 1970s, where he says, uh, there's, in my opinion, no real difference between formal languages of logic, mathematics, and natural languages. Again, emphasizing the conceptual um, similarities between these two kinds of languages, which means that he's also engaged in showing how, in principle, you could analyze natural languages by the means of uh, provided by logic. By um, this sort of distinction between conceptual and empirical, we mean that if we're investigating something that's true conceptually, 
what we're doing is we're uh, checking to see what's true by definition, no matter what's the case. And if we're checking to see what's true empirically, that means we're checking to see whether something is true by conducting experiments. Ideally, we would use those terms or have that opposition in place. That's not quite how it worked and to a large extent still doesn't work in informal semantics. When I say that the motivation of Davidson and Montague was conceptual, what I mean is that they weren't actually interested in the nitty-gritty details of actual natural languages. Mostly they focused simply on very stylized fragments of just one natural language, namely English. So there was no comparative work. And you get the definite impression, even explicit statements to back that up, that they weren't considering themselves as doing, say, being involved in description of empirical phenomena, but showing how an empirical phenomenon could be captured by formal means, but not necessarily claiming that their formalizations would embody empirical claims, for example, about how natural language is actually processed or produced. The passage in Truth and Meaning of Davidson that I was referring to actually says that. So I want to sort of give a conceptual reconstruction of what it is to be a competent language user, but my conceptual reconstruction does not embody any empirical claims about the actual psychological processing that is going on when people actually use language. So it's the difference maybe then between trying to come up with a theory that says here are the properties something has to be in order to count as a language uh, and here are the things you have to know in order to count as somebody who understands and is able to speak a language versus going out into you know various far off locations in the world and studying the actual different languages that people actually speak. Yeah, that's more like it, and you don't need to go out very far in the world to encounter other languages than English, of course. I mean, well, you, you've encountered uh, at least one other language here uh, during your stay in Amsterdam, I hope. <laughs> and that empirical uh, motivation was brought in, as I mentioned earlier, by when people with a linguistics background started entering the, uh, the field and say, okay, well, these are interesting formal theories concepts that we can use to actually study natural language phenomena in detail as they uh, appear out there in the wild. As was customary in linguistics in the 60s and 70s, there wasn't that much, say, comparative linguistics going on or historical linguistics. By that time, the, the dominant paradigm in linguistics was that of generative grammar which very much focused on, um, on universal properties of what they call possible human uh, languages. So a, a certain natural inclination to remain at a rather abstract and uh, general level is also characteristic of the empirical work done in formal linguistics in the early days. But uh, over the years, we've seen both in linguistics in general and in formal semantics, much more interest in comparative and historical and other more empirical aspects of the natural language phenomenon. One particularly notable development in formal semantics that, well, I think of as occurring around 1980 is referred to as generalized quantifier theory. And this is a new approach to thinking of the meaning of words like every and some and all. What were the basic ideas behind generalized quantifier theory? Uh, well, generalized quantifying theory is, I think, one of the um, best examples of where 
formal semantics shows its strengths. It takes a, um, a wide range of phenomena, all kinds of determiners, quantifying expressions, uh, things like all, some, the definite article, but also uh, non-standard quantifiers like most, few, numerical expressions like at least six, at most 25, and so on and so forth, and um, analyzes them along basically one and the same grid. All these expressions are treated as relations between sets. What generalized quantifier theory does is simply study the properties of these relations, come up with classifications of quantifying expressions in terms of the properties of the relations that they express, like being monotone increasing or monotone decreasing, and even coming up with some purported uh, universal properties of uh, quantifying expressions like conservativity. A conservative relation is um, a relation which holds between two sets A and B if and only if it also holds between A and the intersection of A and B. A natural language equivalent would be um, something like uh, every boy sleeps uh, being equivalent with every boy is a boy who sleeps. Uh, that holds for every, it holds for some, it, it seems to hold for almost all quantifying expressions. There's a notable exception which is the expression only for which the equivalence does not hold. And that then leads to a further question, right? We can either say, okay, well, we almost had a universal property there. Or we can say, well, maybe this is an indication that only is not a genuine generalized quantifier, but look for other properties of the use of that expression that distinguish it from ordinary uh, quantifying expressions. Only also functions as a focusing device, which is a function that a normal determiners and quantifying expressions don't have. So we come up uh, here with, and this is just a simple example, with universal property that can also be used as a diagnostic device for separating out what maybe on the surface looks like a quantifying expression but actually has a different function. Now that works because of the formal logical apparatus that formal semantics brings to bear on natural language phenomena. And I think this is one of the uh, examples where it really shows uh, how it leads to new insights into new ideas. That's also an interesting example, I think, because it seems to be a case where the two approaches we started off by discussing are coming together because they're both, at least to a certain limited extent, interested in the different ways you say things like every sum and all in different languages but they're also interested in kind of making generalizations on the basis of those observations and coming up with what are called semantic universals, of which you just mentioned one. Yep. For, so the, for every quantifier, for every word like every all and some, if every A is B, then every A is an A that is B. Yep. So I can see why, why you'd look at that as you know, the pinnacle of formal semantics, as yep. it were. What are some other examples of phenomena that formal semanticists are interested in observing and theorizing about? Basically, uh, formal semanticists are interested in, certainly if they have a more empirical background. So formal semanticists who are linguists by training are interested in basically every aspect of meaning of natural language. But of course the enterprise brings with it that the focus will be on those aspects that can actually be captured by means of a formal logical theory. 
Right? So the emphasis will be on, on structural properties rather than say on the individual meanings of individual lexical items. So as far as there is attention to lexical semantics, it's again on properties that define entire classes of lexical items. Uh, like for example, the distinction between mass nouns and count nouns or work that's being done on the tense system of natural languages or on aspect, stuff like that. So where we have classifications of, of verb meanings as being stative or uh, processes or that fall into other categories. So the focus will always be on structural properties. Something that I have been working on with uh, Jeroen Groenendijk for a while and then which also ties in with other work that has been done here um, in Amsterdam by Frank Veldman and on a more logical uh, level by um, Johan van Bentham is dynamic semantics. So if you want to analyze, say, the relationship between indefinite noun phrases like a man, some women, uh, and so on and so forth, and pronouns as a case of ordinary binding as we know it from standard logic, where a quantifier binds occurrences of variables that are in its scope, you encounter a curious problem if you look at not sentences, but discourses or sequences of sentences, like in a short story or in a, a dialogue or other form of multi-sentential language use. Because then, apparently, um, anaphoric expressions can be used to refer back to indefinite noun phrases that occur not in the sentence itself, but in a sentence that precedes the sentence in which the anaphor occurs. Like a, a very simple example would be a silly story that say something like a man entered the bar period he wore a fur trimmed hat or something like that or my favorite he wore blue suede shoes uh, in order to account for the fact that the he in the second sentence refers back to the man that's been mentioned in the first sentence we need somehow to establish a connection between the indefinite noun phrase which we normally would analyze using an existential quantifier and the anaphor, which seems to function as a variable. Well, there are various theories around. Dynamic predicate logic is a theory that tries to account for this kind of extended binding by um, changing the semantics of the predicate logic, the logical theory that's used to describe these, these sentences by allowing quantifiers to bind variables that are not properly in their scope. Yeah, so maybe intuitively the issue here is on the, the old theory, what's called static semantics as opposed to dynamic semantics, the theory tells you how you figure out the meaning of a whole sentence on the basis of the meanings of the individual words in the sentence and the rules for combining them. But that process never happens sort of between sentences. So each sentence is sort of, you figure out the meaning of each sentence individually. And what the dynamic approach tries to do is to allow for you know some of these rules that help you figure out what the meaning of a sentence is, kind of look back to previous sentences that you said before to figure out what the meaning of this sentence is. Because in order to figure out who he refers to, and when, when you say he wore blue suede shoes, you have to look back to the former sentence when you sort of introduced somebody that you want to start talking about, when you said a man walked into a bar. Yeah, so it's a combination of the problem that you're faced with is uh, arises from a combination of the focus on the sentence as the unit of analysis and compositionality. And one of those two uh, has to uh, give way if you want to come up with a, a systematic theory of these kinds of examples. Another uh, um, example that illustrates more or less the same point is um, 
something that leads to what is called update semantics, which refers to work that has been done by Frank Feldman in the early 80s. And the example, again, a very simple, and, and because of their simplicity, they always look a bit silly, but nevertheless, I mean, they make a, a very fundamental point. It's an example that involves uh, epistemic models, like might. And the phenomenon uh, has to do with the difference between saying something like, it might be raining, it's not raining, versus it's not raining, it might be raining. The first is an acceptable sequence, right? because the might expresses that as far as you know, it's still possible that it is raining. And then you look out the window to check and you see actually it's not raining. That's perfectly consistent. The second sequence, it's not raining, it might be raining, is out because the utterance of it's not raining already tells you that your information state contains the proposition that it's not raining. And then checking whether it might contain the proposition that it is raining is of course uh, completely um, fruitless. Now what this illustrates is that the utterance of sentences is first of all order sensitive and that is explained by looking at what sentences do in terms of how they change or how they affect the information state of a listener or a speaker. So if I make a simple statement like uh, it's sunny at the moment, that is an invitation to update your information state with that proposition. The might model is something that's also related to an information state, but not as an update, but as a checking device. It checks whether something is still possible according to the information state that you're currently in. Now that dynamic predicate logic and update semantics are theories that sort of shift the emphasis from the more traditional, referential and truth conditional aspect of meaning to a more dynamic aspect of meaning, uh, namely focusing on the update potential or the context change potential as it's, it's another term that's used. And thereby they also shift the focus on natural language meaning as something that is primarily descriptive in nature towards a more interactive notion of meaning that has to do with information exchange. So once dynamic semantics hits the scene, then suddenly we have semanticists working with kind of two different notions of meaning. We have the old notion of meaning, which we call truth conditional, which is something like the meaning of a sentence is a way the world has to be in order for the sentence to be true, or sometimes it's referred to as like a picture of the way the world is. And then we have the dynamic conception of meaning where the meaning of a sentence is its potential to change what people in a conversation believe and take for granted. Does that mean that formal semanticists, well, does that mean that there are now two kinds of formal semantics or are those two kinds of semanticists doing the same thing? Now you're touching on a, a very interesting issue. As far as the truth conditional and the dynamic conception of meaning are concerned, they still look sort of compatible, if only because, um, say, the ordinary truth conditional uh, notion of meaning is also formally a limit case of the dynamic conception. And so if you're looking at states of total information, right, where you're completely informed about the world, then the update potential of a sentence turns out to be its true conditional content. Right? So in that sense, there is no conflict between the two, although they do strongly differ in their emphasis on what it is that uh, natural language meaning 
does, and thereby they also represent different views on the function of natural language, why we have language in the first place. But the, the situation actually is much more complicated nowadays than um, if it were only these two different conceptions, they would still be compatible, as I explained. Actually, if you look at the literature in formal semantics or more broadly in, in natural language semantics, then you see uh, a wide range of diverse concepts of meaning around. Right? You have meaning in terms of truth conditions, meaning explained in terms of assertability conditions, meanings explained in terms of speaker's meaning, right? analyzed in terms of the, the intentions, the communicative intentions of speakers, various flavors of dynamic uh, meaning, uh, you have representationalist uh, notions of meaning. You have even people arguing that there is no such thing as literal meaning to begin with. Right? Well, if you're a radical contextualist, then uh, you basically say that meaning arises only in context and there's no, say, context-transcending notion of meaning to be found. And that enormous conceptual diversity is something puzzling. If you're talking about an empirical phenomenon, you expect in any discipline a certain variety of theoretical viewpoints, differences in the way in which people think that the phenomenon can best be understood. But the very nature of the phenomenon seems to be more or less taken for granted. At least there seems to be a consensus on basic physical phenomena that physics is concerned with or the basic phenomena that we want to understand in chemistry or in molecular biology or what have you. There seems to be consensus on what the phenomenon is that is lacking if you look at this conceptual diversity in semantics and more broadly in linguistics. You know, a nice example of that, I think, is when you start looking at you know, really experimental work in semantics, you know, you get these studies about what do people say when they're asked to make judgments in surveys or things like that. And then that really you know, raises the question, are we trying to model what people actually do or are we trying to model some sort of idealized version of what they do? Because if we're just trying to model what they actually do, then it seems like we've lost the idea that people can make mistakes. And these are issues that have yet to be sorted out in a way that maybe they, well, either never came up or already have been sorted out in, let's say, chemistry or biology or something. Everybody knows well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to explain when this thing boils when you do that and why this thing turns blue when you do that. But in the case of what meaning is, I guess there's still, we have yet to reach a consensus about what the thing our theories are trying to explain really is. Yeah, and I think that one of the problems there is that in formal semantics today, we're still suffering from the ill effects of the introduction of the competence performance distinction by Chomsky in the early days of generative linguistics. Chomsky famously made this distinction by saying that what linguistics is concerned with is the competence of individual language users, which means their ability to use language, both actively and receptively, uninhibited by memory limitations or uh, mistakes or intervening factors like uh, shifts of intention, their communicative intentions and so on and so forth. Um, so basically what Chomsky uh, was doing, he was pushing aside all the factors that make language and uh, meaning in particular into a rather heterogeneous phenomenon. So he constructed a homogeneous notion, the ideal speaker-listener, and uh, declared that that was what linguistics should be concerned with. Now, Michiel von Lammach and I have been um, 
analyzing this type of construction that is at the core of modern linguistics and by implication also plays a role in formal semantics in terms of an opposition between what we call idealization and abstraction. Right? So every scientific discipline constructs the notions, the concepts that it is concerned with from the myriad of phenomena that you can actually observe regarding that concept. And every uh, discipline also thereby abstracts away from uh, certain features of the phenomena, like movement of objects on a frictionless plane, or you have the idea of a perfect vacuum, or a perfectly rigid rod, and so on and so forth, which we know actually don't exist, but for the purposes of our theories are convenient abstractions. Now, abstractions in that sense arise when you take a particular quantitative parameter of the phenomenon, for example, like friction or flexibility of an object, and you set that to a particular numerical value, you say it's zero or it's whatever. Right? And you do that for practical reasons, uh, because it's not interesting to look at the small variations or because it's intractable. It may be a feature that is really uh, simply beyond our uh, means to um, determine the actual value. But in the theory in which the abstraction functions, the parameter is still there, which means that in principle it's always possible to go back to observation, to go back to experiment and see what the effects of the abstraction are. And if they turn out to be detrimental to, for example, applications, then you're forced to devote time and energy to actually dealing with it in a non-abstracted way. Now an idealization, what we call an idealization, is the distinction is in the literature, but it's often referred to by different terminology. But what we call an idealization is where you simply leave out a phenomenon. Right? So in your theory, in which uh, the idealized concept plays a role, what you have left out simply doesn't occur anymore. Which means that if you want to go back, you really need an additional theory to account for the discrepancy. And actually, uh, you can find Chomsky acknowledging, for example, with respect to the notion of competence, that it's quite unlikely that a theory of competence, in his sense, will be able to be aligned and make predictions about actual language behavior, because the interface between the two theories will be too complicated to deal with. You might think that classical mechanics and linguistics are kind of the same because they both make simplifying assumptions. In order to explain a complicated phenomenon, you have to make simplifying assumptions and you explain a little bit and then you start introducing complexities into your theory and model more and more of the complexities and the idea is that eventually you will have an account of all the complexities. But actually to say that would be to ignore an important distinction because in the case of classical mechanics, if you want to describe what happens when I throw one billiard ball against another billiard ball, a good way to begin is to pretend that there's no gravity or friction. And then maybe in later versions of the explanation, introduce gravity and friction into the equation. And then eventually you'll have a fuller description of what the laws governing objects bouncing into each other are. But the thing that you're drawing our attention to is that it's easier to do that in the case of classical mechanics because there was already a way to express the idea of gravity and friction in the theory. It's just that you know, there was a friction parameter, as it were, you just set it to zero. Whereas in the case of linguistics, there are aspects of meaning that we abstract away from. You know, for example, so a truth conditional 
theory of meaning, a theory according to which the meaning of a sentence is just the circumstances in which it is true. Maybe the fact that I am trying to humiliate you when I insult you isn't part of the theory. But the difference there is that it's not like there was a humiliation parameter in the theory that we set to zero and we're later going to you know, try and work with that. It's just there's no way to even express the idea of that additional feature of meaning in the theory, so we have to build a whole new theory. Yeah, that's exactly um, what I was trying to say, except that when you said abstract away from, we would say idealize away in okay, order good, to make right. the, uh, the distinction also in, uh, terminologically uh, visible. But that, that is exactly what you're doing. And one other way of sort of characterizing the differences is if you're doing abstraction, you're not changing the ontology, right? You're forgetting about a particular phenomenon for the moment, but it's always still there in your full characterization of the phenomenon. Whereas in an idealization, you're actually changing the ontology of the, that the theory is dealing with. Right? If you look at the model of your theory, you end up with objects in which the dimensions that you have idealized away simply don't occur. And that's what also brings along then the need for additional theory to connect that constructed ontological domain with the domain of phenomena that you encounter in actual language use, in observation and experiment. So the worry then is that semanticists are really going to have a lot of work to do because whenever they want to start taking a new phenomenon into account, they kind of have to go back to the drawing board and make a whole new theory. That takes a lot of work and, you know, the whole project comes to seem a bit Sisyphean. You suggested that some of the ideas of the later philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein might be of use to uh, semanticists in getting around this problem of constantly having to build new theories to account for new phenomena. How can Wittgenstein help us here? Well, first of all, I think it's fair to say that Wittgenstein uh, is also part of the problem. But that's then early Wittgenstein, right? So if you look at the developments in philosophy and logic that eventually led up to the idea of formal semantics for natural language, then I think uh, Wittgenstein's Tractatus stands out as a, a very good example of a number of assumptions that have been taken over by formal semanticists. Unwittingly, because uh, it's not a case of direct historical uh, influence, but indirectly, Wittgenstein has influenced the formation of formal semantics considerably. So how would later Wittgenstein help? The problem, as I see it, is not that there is a problem with formal semantics in what it does, and not even, by and large, in how it tends to do it. But the real problem is to get a good grip on what it is that formal semantics is doing. It's doing something, it's producing interesting descriptions and analyses, but the question is, what is the nature of those descriptions and analyses? Are they really empirical theories, right? explanatory theories, or are they something different? And I think that if you look at the work of later Wittgenstein, then the strong suggestion is that these are not really explanatory theories, like we have in other disciplines, but rather uh, parts of an overall characterization of a phenomenon that is too heterogeneous to allow for a, a uniform explanatory theory to begin with. I think that what we can learn from Wittgenstein's later uh, work is that, is that language in general, and meaning in particular, 
is not a homogeneous phenomenon. So questions whether meaning is something internal or whether there's externalism in meaning, whether meaning is individual or whether it is something that can be ascribed only to a linguistic community, whether uh, there are natural constraints on meaning or whether meaning has to be thought of more in social-cultural uh, terms, in the end turn out to be false oppositions. If you look at them as, as really choices that you need to make, then it's clear where formal semantics is. It strongly favors internalistic, individual, biologically grounded notions of meaning. But if you look at the actual phenomena, you see that it's a little bit of everything, basically, which is well, disappointing from if you're looking for a homogeneous object to describe and explain. But on the other hand, uh, there are every reason to think that that is a fact of life. And the consequence of that is that well, David Marr famously made a, a distinction uh, in his uh, paper on artificial intelligence, what he called type 1 and type 2 theories. And uh, type 1 theories are theories about a phenomenon that is sufficiently homogeneous to allow uh, the application of his three levels of explanation, like the computational, algorithmic, and wetware implementational uh, level. Artificial intelligence, according to Marr, is typically a phenomenon that does not allow that kind of theory. Right? There can be no computational description of everything that we classify under the term intelligence or intelligent behavior. And I think that what Wittgenstein's work, especially his later work, on meaning and all the phenomena with which it is related shows is that two might be a too heterogeneous phenomenon to allow for a uniform explanatory theory. Well, what does that mean for formal semantics? It doesn't mean that formal semantics is ill-conceived or is, is going nowhere, is not doing anything useful, but it does show that it's not that explanatory theory that people have often taken it to be. But it is rather a systematic description of one particular aspect of a very complex and uh, heterogeneous phenomenon in which all the various aspects are really intrinsically in symmetric fashions uh, related to each other. Of course people have realized, people working in formal semantic have realized that what they're saying about meaning isn't all that could be said. Right? That you need it on top of a semantic theory, a pragmatic theory, like a Gricean theory of conversational implicatures or theory dealing with pragmatic presuppositions and so on and so forth. And actually the dynamic concept versus the static concept is also a kind of uh, instance of such a hierarchical uh, relation. But what Wittgenstein's work shows is that it's not a matter of a domain that is hierarchically structured, where you can say, well, this is the core, and on top of that we can build additional parameters and additional, uh, can account for additional aspects. It's not that language use is something that comes after meaning in a truth conditional sense. It's rather dealing what, with language in the way that is characterized by um, theories of formal semantics is just one among the many ways in which language can be used. Of course language can be used in terms of giving descriptions and in making um, statements that have definite truth conditions and so on and so forth. But it's not a basic way that uh, lies 
beneath all the other ways. It's just one way among a great many. And not just that, the many ways in which we can use language are, are open-ended and are constantly changing and are reflections of our needs and, and goals and, and interests that are not specifically linguistic to begin with. I think one way of sort of illustrating uh, this is to look at what the later Wittgenstein said about the early Wittgenstein. I think that if you look at the philosophical investigations, it's not that Wittgenstein is out there to show that, say, the kind of conception of meaning that he connects with the Augustinian picture, but what basically is the conception of meaning that's also uh, exemplified by his tractators, that that conception of meaning is wrong. It's just that it is wrong in its claim of being fundamental. But it is, it does characterize one way in which language functions and one way in which we operate with language. Martin Stockhoff, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. It was a, my pleasure. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N dot uchicago dot edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. <laughs>